0: Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm
1: Kara Swisher, editor at large of Recode. You may know me as the keeper of so many secrets, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Scott Cooper, the managing partner of Andreessen Horowitz. He's also the author of a new book called Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It. Scott, welcome to Recode Decode. And joining us for this interview is Recode's finance editor, Teddy Schliefer. Hey, how's it going? Teddy, how
2: you doing? Good, thanks. Good.
1: So we're going to talk VC, Scott.
2: I heard we might do that. Mm
1: -hmm. But first I want to know, saying you're the managing partner of Andreessen Horowitz, it's one of the most important venture firms in Silicon Valley. Thank you. Do the very quick and dirty how you got there.
2: Yeah, so very quickly, uh, I have been working for Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz for almost 20 years now. So I joined them when they started LoudCloud in 99. Right, so you can't leave. Did a bunch of stuff, right, exactly. And uh, when we finished up that gig, uh, I told my wife... Maybe there's one more in us, and she's like, you must be a glutton for punishment, which mm-hmm. I agreed. And so now I'm 10 years into this thing. What did you do at LabClub? So I did a bunch of stuff. I started on the finance side. So I had been an investment banker before. So I started right. on the finance side and helped take the company public. And then Ben said to me one day, so look, look, as long as you're here, you probably ought to learn something other than finance. And so mm-hmm. he put me in charge of a couple engineering groups. And then I spent most of my time in the field. I ran professional services, pre-sales, and support and then did the same at actually at HP. So once we got acquired by HP, I ran the support business for mm-hmm. the software business. Right. Loud Cloud was an interesting experience, Albert. It was a very interesting. It was like experience.
1: a failure, and then it sold, so that it wasn't right.
2: Uh, it, I would say it was a failure. I think that's a that's it was a challenge. Stronger. It was challenged. That exactly. Okay. right. We started at ninety nine, and you know we grew from literally like zero to about six hundred and fifty people in mm-hmm. about twelve months. And then, of course, the market, you know, did a slight turn, and we ended up kind of having to drop down. We dropped down to about 80 people at our low point and basically restarted the company as this company called Opsware as a software company once we were already public. And eventually, look, if you held your stock, it sold for, you know, $1.6 billion HP, so Mm -hmm. it actually turned out to be a fine investment. But, you know, there were lots of times along the way where you might not have decided to hold your stock.
1: Right. What did you learn from that experience?
2: Uh, Look, I I learned a ton of stuff. I think probably the most important thing is just that, you know, you can't, it's very easy from the end to kind of build these narrative fallacies of these businesses, Mm -hmm. and you look back and you think everything was up and to the right. And the reality is, you know, which I still believe today is building a startup is kind of a series of near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. And the question is always like, do you have enough cash to actually make the next turn to try to get to where you are? And we were lucky. We did a few Hail Marys, like selling part of our business to generate cash, but every now and then, uh, you know, it worked out and at least gave us a path forward.
3: Yeah, so now you're Andreessen. Um, yep. Your role is is interesting. I mean, you are kind of. I don't know. I know this is not under under a business card, but you're sort of like the CEO of the firm in a lot of ways, or the CEO of a lot of the firms. Obviously, your name is not Andreessen. It is nor, not. Nor is, is it Horowitz. Not um, what happened, Scott? <laughs> maybe maybe someday we'll exactly. Uh, but you know, your your role is to kind of manage the non deal focused yep. parts of the business, yeah, which is. In a lot of ways, behind the scenes role, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Behind the scenes, uh, the the not behind the scenes part is I spend a lot of my time also on the LP side, so raising capital for the firm. So I spend a lot of time talking to LPs about what we're doing in the business. You know, as you know, you guys know, and I'm sure we'll talk about. I spend time in places like DC on you know, kind of mm-hmm. understanding and trying to kind of bridge some of the gaps between DC and Silicon You're the Valley. former
3: former head of the National, I, right, National Capital the Association, of,
2: right? MVCA, yeah, yeah. Mark Mark used to joke. Actually, it was funny. Mark used to call me Slash was my title, so Slash, not like a fighter, but like the uh, you know the the forward slash, Mark, like you have okay. in your URL, because it's like, you know, I'm kind of like, you know, chief bottle washer slash, you know, finance person slash fundraiser slash take out the garbage, whatever needs to happen, basically. The only
1: the person willing to come to go to D.C. among your exactly. group. Mark, <laughs> I think, leaves Palo Alto, right? It's Every like, now and then, it's yeah. pretty hard to get him to get on a plane
2: and go yeah, somewhere. Yeah, exactly.
1: Explain your duties then, what yeah. Teddy was just asking. Yeah, you.
2: so there's a couple of ways to think about. It. So one is just fundraising and making mm-hmm. sure that we actually we have a business from an LP perspective. So we raised a couple new funds this year, so I spent the better part of three months kind of telling the story, going on the road, kind of marshaling all the resources to get our money raised. And then I spent a lot of time kind of post that, you know, you call it investor relations, whatever the right term is, but just making sure the LPs know what's happening. They're happy. They I believe it's like. called maintenance is maintenance. the word. Right, yeah. Maintenance. Mm-hmm. Maintaining relationships. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one big piece. The second is the day-to-day of making sure the firm works. So, you know, we've got a finance team and a legal team and an HR team and an IT team, right? All the stuff that has to happen. And then the third part is um, I sit on the investment committee for the deal. So, I typically don't go on board seats. Uh, obviously, other general partners will do that. But you know, if I have deals that come in, you know, I'll pass them along to the rest of the deal team to review, and then at least I get a chance to be part of the valuation process right. for
3: those deals. So most most firms do not have your role. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, do you think that other firms sometimes get like overextended by the fact that like you know I'm not I'm not asking you to name names, but yeah. other firms if their investors are also you know the people who are kind of their their skill set is assessing and sourcing deals are the same people who are you know I know you're joking about taking out the garbage, but yeah. At the end of the day, that would roll up to them.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think what's happened so I think in the big in the past, what happened was there was never a need to really spend a lot of time on the investor side because, quite frankly, just if you were in the business, the money just came, and there's yeah. some you know, very interesting stories about you know firms in the old days would literally just call up their LPs and say, okay, we're closing a fund in the next like three weeks, send us your subscription documents, and we'll go forward. So right. I think there was never a need. I think people felt to externally manage those relationships. I think that's changed, just quite frankly, given the nature of the business. And then you're right. The other thing was most of these things don't really function like a company. So the thing I think that's different from us is we look like mm-hmm. a company at the end of the day, right? We have-
3: people, 200, right? 200 employees. Yeah, right? we got
2: 170 right now. Uh, yeah. And so you've got managers, and people have objectives, and they've got metrics, and people We'll have to do things like one-on-one meetings and all-hands meetings. And so we run it like a company. And so I think at that, when you have something like that, you kind of need someone sitting in this role just to make sure that those yeah. day-to-day things happen. Which is why there's a lot of problems of venture capital firms when yeah. you don't have it. The... So explain the, the structure of Andreessen and
1: Horowitz then. You have people yeah. – people only think of partners.
2: Yeah. So, so, yeah. so it's for
1: the person who doesn't
2: understand a venture so firm. basic simple structure of Andreessen and Horowitz, we've got about 170 people. Mm-hmm. About 100 of those people are but on the which To be post. clear, is
3: bigger, bigger by far than – I think that's right. every yeah. other venture yeah. firm.
2: I can imagine there may be firms, I don't know, like a Sequoia, for example, who's got China and other operations, right? The, right. the headcount may add up, but certainly— A
3: typical venture firm has, what, like 50 employees maybe? I think maybe? that's probably sure, right. right, probably less okay. than that even. Yeah.
2: So you got 100 of the 170 who work only post-investment. So they're divided into a bunch of groups. You all, of course, know Margaret and her team on the marketing side. So one of the things we do with our companies is help them, obviously, you know, get access from a PR mm-hmm. and marketing perspective. So there's four other groups like that. They're focused on sales and business development. They're focused on executive talent technical talent, which is basically engineers, and then what we call corporate development, which is fundraising and M&A activities. So you got two-thirds of the headcount basically sitting there. You have probably today 30-odd people on the deal side, so roughly about 15 general partners and about 15 what we call deal partners, which is kind of the next you know, non-general partner rung down. And then you've got the rest of the group is g right, between legal, finance, operations, systems, you know, IT, HR, all that stuff. So mm-hmm. that's basically kind of how, to, how essentially the firm subdivides today.
1: And then there's partners.
2: And there's partners. So we use the term partner generically right. kind of to describe everybody. Right. But there are general that. partners. Yeah. And a general partner, basically the job definition is you can write a check and you can sit on a board. That's mm-hmm. essentially what that job means. And so anything, anybody who's not a general partner basically can participate in those activities but doesn't have the authority to do those things.
1: And, and you guys, when you start, uh, the idea I remember Mark talking about is you're going to be different than venture capital firms. Yeah. Is that true? Has that been true for you guys? <laughs> I think we've been Because different. it seems like yeah. SoftBank has taken taken in a whole new
2: direction. But, yeah, but the Softbank's concept was that yeah. you
1: were trying something fresh.
2: Yeah, the fundamental that idea was... was I think that's right. So it was 10 years ago, actually, exactly mm-hmm. this uh, last month. The fundamental idea was we had this predilection for backing kind of, you know, product-centric founders. Mm-hmm. And the whole vision, I think, that Mark and Ben had was, look, if you can basically take product-centric founders, how can we improve the likelihood that they can go on to be the long-term CEOs for the business? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, of course, there's the good examples of, you know, a Jeff Bezos or Larry Ellison, people who are kind of founders and CEOs for very long periods of time. So we said, look, if you've got those folks... They Sometimes they might have had a job before, quite mm-hmm. frankly. They certainly probably in many cases haven't been CEOs. So what are the things they don't know? Well, they probably don't know the CIOs of different companies they can sell into. They probably don't know a bunch of CFOs or heads of sales to hire. So mm-hmm. the whole idea behind these groups was to set up how can we basically augment what these founders right. have – by rounding out their skill sets, and then hopefully that would mean over time they could grow in to be the long So you CEO. were the more
1: helpful VC, the concept. No, you're just not the check, the don't. I think chef. that's right,
2: right. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think we've done, I mean, I think we've, you know, kind of been true to that and actually demonstrated that that can be helpful in helping our companies actually get to those milestones. And this was modeled
3: on CAA, right?
2: That's exactly right, right yeah. Right,
3: so this was like, and, par- and, par- and part of the premise is that other firms are, you know, if you only have 50 employees, you don't have somebody who's helping right. with, you know, to figure out who the who is CIO they need to sell into is.
2: Yeah, so we use this, it's... Uh, This may resonate with you. So in our first, actually, LP day, in our first investor day, we kind of talked about this concept of deconstructing John Doerr, believe it or not, was kind of how we described it to our LPs. And we said, look, if you've got somebody like John Doerr, who's, you know, obviously been an incredibly successful person, you know, he knows everybody. He's got a Rolodex like you've never seen before. He's got all kinds of things. The question, though, is, look, that's not scalable for every GP to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So essentially what we said was, look, let's disaggregate the general partner job and let's have the general partner's focus on finding deals, evaluating deals, sitting on boards and hopefully being helpful there. But there's no reason why they need to know the ins and outs of who are the 50 CFOs who are in the market today looking for a job at, you know, Instacart or Airbnb, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was staff that stuff with professional people who know that and then use the GPs where appropriate. So, you know, when you're getting to final rounds of interviews with a CFO, of course, you want the GP involved. But they don't need to run the search day-to-day or worry about that stuff. And so we mm-hmm. thought it was better to separate out those functions. And that's basically what there we're There was a
1: concept like that before, Andrews, not uh, accelerators, incubators. Yeah, which was a little bit, I remember talking to Mark at the time yeah. uh, and Ben about the big,
2: the... I think that's right. The big difference we've tried to do is we always talk about building networks as mm-hmm. opposed to, use the word helpful, and we are helpful, but we really don't think of ourselves as a service provider to our companies. We think of ourselves as trying to build networks and then plug people into the network. And mm-hmm. I know that sounds maybe a little bit nuanced, but as an example... You know, it doesn't make sense for us to go say, okay, let's go help you close a sales deal with Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. What does make sense is we should know who all the relevant buyers are in the different areas of Goldman Sachs, and we ought to show them 10, 20 different opportunities over the course of a year where they might be able to invest in stuff. But then the company has to actually go run that sales process, right? We don't want to put training wheels on these companies and, and basically do a function for them. But if we can get them into a relationship they otherwise couldn't get to, mm-hmm. it's great for them and it's scalable for us because now we own that relationship. We know who those people are and now we can just kind of you know show a bunch of different companies to them over time.
3: On Kara's question about whether or not you guys feel like you've changed things, a lot of firms have, I'm sure it would be gratifying to hear, it, have copied you guys to some extent. I wonder if you graphed kind of total venture capital firm s- staff size over time. It's increased it's over grand, the last yeah. ten years. It's grand, yeah, I mean, has that made it harder? The fact, that, like, you know, maybe ten years ago, no one else had a CIO, but some, you know, or no, one, sorry, no, no, one else knew the CIOs right, and right, right. had people kind of doing this full time. Not, you know, obviously the the counter example to Andreessen was last time is Benchmark, which yep. is still a very small right. firm, probably less than twenty employees. I'm just guessing. Yeah. but a lot, a lot of firms, which is probably flattering to hear, have have copied a lot of the Andreessen model. Maybe not quite 170 employees, but 50 to 70. Has that made it harder?
2: It hasn't made it harder other than it just, as with all things, look, the competition is always hard and you got to just run faster. So nobody's done it at the scale we've done it at. We think nobody's done it with this kind of broad network approach as opposed to kind of just kind of help you in certain areas because we think that's a much more scalable way to do it. But look, I think the reality is, look, we can't sit on our, we can't, you know, kind of sit on our hands and assume that that things aren't going to change. Like, the market will change. And I think the biggest thing overall that's changed over the last 10 years is, look, if you're just a check, there's nothing, there's no way you can be successful in this business. Because there's
1: bigger checks.
2: There's always better. There's always somebody who's got more money and a lower cost of capital than you do. So the question is, and entrepreneurs have choices, right? So the question is, why will an entrepreneur work with you or not? And... We hope that they will choose us because of this. We also now, the nice thing about this business is it is a relationship and a referral business. And so instead of them just hearing us kind of brag about how wonderful you are, we just say, hey, look, go talk if to the 10 years' investment. Yeah, yes. just go talk right. to, you know, 100 of our CEOs and ask them comparatively, like, what kind of value you get in from the organization. I mean, we'll
1: talk about that idea of an artisanal VC, because I think yeah. that can change. It absolutely can yeah. change in lots of ways. But how did you decide to do this book? Let's get to the book, and then after the break, we'll talk more about it.
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I basically wrote the book because I've been doing tech stuff for about 25 years now. I was a banker. I was at LoudCloud and Ops and then 10 years here. And I just kept getting the same basic questions from entrepreneurs, even as foundational as like, should I even raise venture capital? And what I, I, I thought, because we live out here in the Valley, of course, and there's, you know, incredible amount of resources that all the questions have been answered. But what I found was there's just this basic, quite frankly, you know, mistrust and distrust between VCs and entrepreneurs. And I think mm-hmm. some of it is because we've got different vocabulary and, you know, you know there's an information asymmetry. And I just felt like, look, like it doesn't – there's no reason why the business should be that way. You know, as you guys know, part of how we think about what we're trying to do at Andrews and Horowitz is if we can kind of help, you know, explain how – You know, we think different things are happening, everything from kind of how we think the future might unfold to how we think the business of venture capital might unfold. And so we thought it was an important next step to kind of do this as well.
1: And uh, so you decided to codify them in a book. Because, you know, you also do these events yourselves, right? You bring in people like the safari tour of Silicon Valley. That's what I think (laughs) someone called it to me. Where you have like people from, I don't know, Caterpillar. Or yeah, we did.
3: Didn't Obama come uh,
2: last year? Uh He's Obama guest, made, He made a guest right? appearance at the okay. office, right? Yes, he was, right. a, you know. The, he
1: was seen by people, but would have exactly talk right. about that she idea? And then I was seen by people. Here he is <laughs> it was on, Instapay, on display. I yeah,
2: the, the safaris, I don't know if uh, that's, a, that's an interesting way to describe it. Basically, kind of, it's it goes with this network piece, right, which is for somebody like a Caterpillar or, you know, Home Depot or FedEx or something, Mm -hmm. our pitch to them is to say, hey, look, we know you want to consume early-stage technology. We also know it's just hard to do because there's no, like, great aggregation points. And so you can go, like, cover every single general partner at every single venture capital firm. Or our pitch to them is, look, come spend a half a day, a day with us, once or twice a year, Tell us the four or five areas you're most interested in, and we'll basically curate a session for you, right? right? And we'll tell you kind of our points of view as to what's happening. We'll bring in four or five CEOs. And, go. of course, our own, you know, interest over time is if we do this well, they'll be more likely probably to engage with our companies and buy mm-hmm. products and services. Right. But we've got to do it in a way that's actually beneficial to them because it's, you right. know, if it, if it feels transactional, it's not going to be actually, you know, very interesting to anybody. Right. So and that's it, that's kind of – I think maybe that's the Safari concept you're yeah, talking so,
1: about? I, so, so talk about th- th- this idea because that is that was something – people didn't do. They didn't do stuff like that. Those were kind of like show and tell. I don't care. What do you want to call it? Safari? Show and tell? Well, so
2: where we stole it from was we stole it from the corporates who do something called executive briefings. Right. Right. So if you're an HP customer, if you're a big customer of HP, they're going to invite you out to... I guess it's Cupertino or Palo Alto. I don't know where they right. are today. And they're going to say, "Hey, let us come come into our customer briefing center and yeah, we'll they tell always you have all that the building. right exactly right." The, they always had with, a building with the nice that, right. drinks and stuff. Exactly yeah. right. You get yeah. the good drinks and you get the glimpse into what the next what the future is. So we basically said, "Look, that exists for big companies, right? If you're an HP or an Oracle, Google. or Google, whatever, you're going to see all that stuff." The problem is there's no analog on the early stage side. And so we said, rather than us just calling up randomly a CIO and saying, "Hey, oh by the way, here's this really cool company, Databricks, for example, that you ought to go look at." We said, look, let's just systematically cover them and get to know their needs, understand them, and just basically make it part of their kind of corporate culture that once or twice a year they come out here. And get smart. And get smart. Right. right. And then, again, our view is, look, if we do that over 5, 10, 15, 20 years and they see we're, we're being helpful to them, then, yes, like, we will get value out of it. Our companies will get value out of it because they're likely to purchase those products and services.
1: All right. Let's get back to the book. So, you decided yeah. you are going to give away the secrets? So <laughs> exactly. Say. Yeah, uh, I like the word
2: "secret." You like the word "secret"? It's a
1: marketing word. Yeah,
2: Yeah. you can imagine that I didn't pick that title that my publisher did. I don't think you gave away the real secrets, but let talk. So
1: you decided you want to do this because people were getting the same. Yeah,
2: I just felt like yeah, like. I was kind of bottled up all these questions that I gotten from entrepreneurs over the years and I was starting I actually started not to write a book. I was gonna write a bunch of blog posts and mm-hmm. I just found as I sat down to write I had more to say. And I just felt like look, there's if we can from a positive value perspective in the industry, if we can actually get rid of some of the secrets, then hopefully it means we kind of a lessen some of that kind of, you know, mistrust or, you know, kind of you know uh, issues that people have between VCs and entrepreneurs, and hopefully that means more entrepreneurship. I mean, the best thing I think that could happen for us, quite frankly, personally as a country, is we should have more entrepreneurs. We should have it more broadly distributed geographically. Sure. We should clearly have it more broadly distributed from a gender and ethnicity perspective. And some of that is, I think, just education of people understanding. You know, this doesn't need to be a black box, basically.
1: Right. So when we get back, we're going to talk about some of those secrets. Wonderful. Uh, we're here with Scott Cooper. He is a managing partner of Andreessen Horowitz. He's also author of a new book called "Secrets of Sand Hill Road: Venture Capital and How to Get It." We're
0: State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur,
2: and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise, The Future of Work
1: We're here with Scott Cooper, the managing partner of Andreessen Horowitz. His new book is called "Secrets of Sand Hill Road: Venture Capital and How to Get It." We're also here with Recode's finance editor Teddy Schliefer. So tell Teddy and I what your secrets are. Talk about. what, what – Give us some of the secrets that we need to know if we're if we're a firm.
2: Well, you you may you may we're know some of these, but I'll but I'll right. tell you otherwise. So well, look, I think all I, of them. I think a couple of the big secrets are and I try to outline this in the book, is you've got to fundamentally understand the incentive structure that, you know, venture capitalists operate under. And the reality is that most of what we do, unfortunately, we're wrong on, right? So probably at least 50% of what we do, we have this very polite way of saying you lose all your money, which we call it impaired capital. But basically it means, you, you know, you made a bad investment, it turns out, not to mean anything. Yeah. And then you make a little bit of money on a few things, but it, it only matters – basically, you know, as you know the only thing that matters is, look, there's 10 or 20% of the things that actually matter, and that's right. what drives all the returns. And so the if you're 10Xers, thinking, right? The 10Xers, the 50s, the 100s, right? Whatever the case may be, right? Right. Uh, not the 10X engineer, if that's what right, you're that referring is-
3: to. Yes. I think that joke will be stale by the time. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that joke is very specific to about five
2: minutes yes. on Twitter. Yes, yeah. Right, go ahead. So the most foundational secret then is, look, you've got to understand that incentive structure. What it means then, therefore, is you've got to, as an entrepreneur, you have to help us understand – why is it that your company can be one of those 10 or 20 percent? Because, look, if we knew which ones would be it, this game would be a lot easier. We just don't, obviously. So, we've got to build a portfolio to get there. And so that means everything from kind of, you know, can the market be big enough to sustain, you know, a big opportunity? And then, probably more importantly, as I talk about in the book, I think people forget about the team piece of it a little bit. People always kind of say, hey, let me tell you my background. But the reality is, at the early stage, there's not a whole lot else to go on other than team. And so, so much of what we're trying to figure out is not if it's a big opportunity, but like, why back this team versus any other team that might, might walk through the door? And I think that's a big area that people tend to kind of give, you know, too little attention to and just don't quite understand how much of, of the decision-making kind of, you know, bears on that piece of the information.
1: And how s- so? How, talk a little bit more about that, because you don't really know if this group can do anything, right?
2: No, but what we try to figure out is, you know, there's a couple things we try to figure out. So, one is um, kind of what is, we talked about this concept of founder market fit, right? You've all heard of product market fit, right? But the founder market fit question is, okay, what is the uniqueness of this team to the market? And Chris Dixon actually has this great term that he calls an earned secret, right? So, what's the secret they know? So, what do they know that's different from what someone else knows? And then how did they earn it, right? So, maybe it was their PhD thesis. Maybe it was a problem they organically solved that they just felt compelled to build a company around. So, something that says, okay, like I have some information that's not obvious to the market that kind of makes me uniquely suited, And then the second big piece that we try to get, you know, as much of a handle on is, we use the term storytelling, but to me, storytelling kind of encompasses a lot of stuff. What it really means to me is, Can you convince someone to probably do something that's irrational for them to do at the time and follow you into an area where, quite frankly, they have no idea whether you're going to be successful, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, can I tell enough of a compelling story that you're going to go tell your significant other, hey, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to go take a 50% drop in my salary to do something because I think this person really is onto something? Mm -hmm. Or can you convince a customer who has no incentive and has all the risk associated with trying that? So, so much of that is, you know, kind of an intangible, but it's, it's kind of, you know, people use the term leadership, but I think it's more than leadership. It's the ability to kind of take leadership skills and ultimately they convey them verbally or otherwise so people can actually understand mm-hmm. and do things, quite frankly, and ju- jump off cliffs when they probably shouldn't.
1: Mm-hmm. So storytelling um- – Talk about that because sometimes that them to be fiction. Correct. You know what I mean?
2: <laughs> so <laughs> great, very, great, I, great stories can be false. I'm very clear about this in the book, which is yes. I'm not talking about, yes, hoodwinking people. Mm-hmm. And so there's a difference there.
1: Well, I think they believe it. themselves. A lot of them believe it. themselves. Some are hoodwinkers. Think,
2: I think people do, right. So look, I think, look, there's bad people and there's no question about that. And I feel hopefully we do a good job of trying to figure that out over time. But it's really kind of can you basically kind of take a set of facts and help convince somebody and help them understand how you can get from here to there, even though there are, quite frankly, kind of logical leaps that you have to get to. I mean, my, mm-hmm. uh, my, I think it was my 11th grade English teacher used to say willful suspension of disbelief is kind of the way to think about it. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of this job is you've got to be able to kind of walk through this kind of set of, of this chain of events that may not be completely obvious, but mm-hmm. at least people come out and they say, okay, I know this person is going to – they're going to walk through walls to try and get this done. I believe that people will follow them, that you know, they will be able to hire people to actually mm-hmm. follow them. And hopefully, to your point, right, they're not hoodwinking people from the story, but they're actually creating a narrative right. around what they're intending to do.
3: Right. right. So, okay, secret one is understanding incentives of VCs and how they work. Yep. What's what are some others?
2: Um, a big thing that we see uh, people making mistakes on that I try to talk about a lot is how much money to raise. And so um, this is a uh, one that admittedly is hard sometimes as a VC to talk about because people believe it's self-serving. And, and so I try to explain it from a non-self-serving perspective. But a lot of people come in, they say, "Okay, look, I'm going to raise $8 million. And you ask them why. And they say, well, that's because that's what an A round is. And, you know, my buddy down the street raised that. And the real answer to that question is, look, how much money do you need to raise in order to de-risk the next fundraising opportunity for you, right? So we would love all these things to look like the narrative fallacy, which is they all go up and to the right. And that means kind of, you know, monotonically increasing your valuation over time. And the big mistakes I think people make is they randomly pick a number. They haven't actually tied it to exactly what the deliverables are. And then they either overraise and then put themselves in a situation where they've raised the bar so high that it's very hard to get that mm-hmm. next round of financing, or quite frankly, they undershoot and find that you get stranded. And so, again, it's a relatively simple thing, but something that, you know, at least when we talk to founders, almost nobody has given a whole lot of thought to that.
1: Well, or VCs. I mean, that sort or of VCs. becomes right, yeah. part of it. I, mean, I think that's right. It, you know, being honest with each other is not one of the hallmarks of Silicon Valley fundraising. <laughs> it seems like, you know, it's just sometimes I've been in rooms and I'm always like, you just made that up, right? Like, you just actually made that up. <laughs> Um, so it's – it's. so what is the smart way to fundraise then? Just how do you – how would you put that together? Well, I think the smart Consume way – It's in your interests. Yeah. Your, your cross-purposes in many ways. Yeah, but I think your if you're funding. an
2: entrepreneur – so look, if you're an entrepreneur today, it's absolutely in your interest to talk to more than one firm, right? And mm-hmm. I would say that even though that's selfishly against my own interests. It's the right thing to do, right? There are – partly because there are different firms who mm-hmm. may just be better fits and partly because, look, you should create competition. There's no reason why you shouldn't do that. Um, and then I think the right way to do it is to go in and say, okay, look – here's what I can accomplish on, I'm just making up a number, but here's what I can do with $5 million, right? And then I think for you to have a reasonable discussion with your VC to say, okay, look, if I had $8 million, here's what more I could do. And therefore, do we both agree that, okay, that's worth it to basically raise more capital, potentially take more dilution, but certainly create a higher post-money valuation in order to achieve that because it sets us up better for the next round. Right. And I think I think people are unwilling to have that dialogue for some reason. And maybe it's because we are on opposite sides of the table and they worry that, look, we're going to push them to take more money because we want more ownership and they're mm-hmm. going to try to do the opposite. But I think, you know, these are such long-lived relationships that if you can't at least have that conversation at the front end, it probably doesn't set you up well for, you know, downstream.
1: Right. And then knowing when you collect too much money, it
2: creates a, probably a worse problem, correct? I, I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, look, I mean, I think – if you take too much money, uh, presumably most cases what you've probably done is you've probably increased the valuation, right? Maybe maybe the VCs crammed you down or something and you got more money for the same valuation, but more likely you've put a higher valuation on it. And that next round investor is going to come in and say, okay, look, you took all this money. What did you do with that money, right? How, how much farther have you gotten? And if you execute, that's great and you're in great shape. But if you don't, I think you're likely to have to kind of, you know, effectively pay that back in the next round of financing. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right. You're probably more likely to kind of get yourself in trouble by taking too much money Raising the bar for the next round, and then finding that okay, you can't clear that bar.
1: Is that the fault of VCs or the or the people who are raising money? Because or, sometimes or
2: or the system, the fact the system, that
1: like right. yeah.
3: you know, I mean, we're oh, you're, 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 talking about you know, we're talking about each of these from the from the perspective of an individual firm and an individual founder. But obviously, in the broader context, you know, firm X offers you know offers this, firm Y offers that. Yep. Yep. You know, there's it's very easy to see each individual firm acting rationally. And the system at large being very irrational.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. But I think, and so look, I think the question though is at least go into that open-minded and just understand what you're doing. So look, if the answer is firm A is offering you $8 million for whatever, you know, 20 million post and the firm B is offering you $6 million for 15 posts, the question to me is, okay, like what better sets you up for the company, right? So don't let the VCs talk you into taking more money just because like they need to actually get their ownership percentage. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, that is clearly their incentive and that's, you know, that's what they're going to do. But the question is, look, as an entrepreneur, do you want to take that or not? And if so, at least have a rational discussion about it and understand how much you've raised the bar on what the milestones are that you need to have. So... Look, I don't know if there's, I mean, it's, I don't know how to assign blame on it. Look, there's no question I agree. There's institutional incentives for every venture capitalist, which is to own as much from a percentage as they can on the company, right? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of sins in this business, but the worst sin in this business is being in a Facebook or a Google or a Twitter and not owning enough of the company that it meaningfully drives returns for your fund. Mm -hmm. So you're always going to have that institutional pressure from the VCs to actually try and kind of, you know, increase their ownership. And that either comes from more money at the same price or less money at lower price, right? And so I think you just got to at least understand that trade-off.
3: Right. I have one kind of question about, about a secret, which you obviously are, are very involved with, with most people don't have any experience with, which is dealing with LPs. Yep. Most people, you know, these are faceless institutions, a yep. hospital, a pension fund, a rich billionaire in Malaysia. Yep. School. A school. Yeah, a school. A school, well, school sure. I guess is one of the more recognizable ones. But right. most, like, so tell us what, what are the incentives of an LP? Um, and how does that kind of play downstream when it affects the startups that are funded, the products that people use. Give us kind of, you know, because I think that is a legitimate, not that the other secrets aren't secrets, but that is a legitimate black box to 99.9% of people in the world. Yeah,
2: so I do a whole chapter in the book on kind of the Yale endowment Mm -hmm. as a way to describe this. But basically, the way to think about it is, look, the incentive of every LP is to generate as high as return as they possibly can in this asset class, and if they can— uncorrelated to the market. Now that's not always possible, but at least they're always looking. This is kind of their this is their alpha asset class. So kind of you know to delta beat the from, market To beat the threat. market right. And to get as high absolute return as possible, as measured by cash on cash returns. So they just to our,
3: these are people that are investing money into venture capital. Firms. That's exactly right. right. Yes, and they
2: have other investments that they're trying. Right, to and that's right, them. and that's the important thing to think about, right? So they're going to get they're going to balance out their asset allocation, and they're going to balance their risk by doing other stuff, right? right. They'll bonds, have some bonds, sorry. and they'll have equities, and they'll have credit, and all this other stuff. And so this is the asset class. where like, look, we're going for broke in this asset class, right? So. You know, it's funny, like, if you could – the honest answer is if you could deliver two and a half to three net returns consistently over 30 years, you would probably be in the top decile for sure of venture capital returns. But if you asked an LP today, they would say – Yeah, that's interesting, but I'd rather you have like 5 or 6x one year, and of course, they don't want you to have, you know, 1.5 or 2x, but they would rather you have kind of meaningful outperformance, quite frankly, in certain periods, even if it meant you didn't have consistent returns over time. Why is Um, that? Well, I think it's just because they aspire to get to those higher returns, so they think, look, if there's more variance, in some respects, variance is a good thing, right? It's Mm -hmm. kind of like buying an option, right? So, you want volatility to a certain extent, because when volatility happens on the upside, it really kind of can move the needle. But, got it. So, so that's that's their foundational piece, right? That's what they're looking for, yeah. so right?
3: T- to take us take us behind the scenes, what are LPs thinking about all day? What are your interactions with them like? Yep. What what are their secrets?
2: Yeah, so what they're thinking about all day long is uh, basically most of them are thinking about how do I get into the funds that I think are going to be most interesting, right? And it turns out in this business, right, for a long time that diversification has been a bad thing in general, you know, returns are not evenly distributed in this right. business and so So there are a few firms
3: that are really there's good. There are few firms that are there really are good. Tons of firms that are brand new that's right. Maybe there's a diamond in the rough there. That's right. But so for, If you're an LP at, you know, the University of Michigan, yep. you're thinking about how do I get into Sequoia, Entries and Horowitz yeah. benchmark?
2: Yeah, basically what they're all doing is they're all playing this barbell strategy right now, which is, okay, the top end of the barbell is firms like us or Sequoia or others, you know, at least in terms, you know, by size, right? So, mm-hmm. look, these are big established institutional firms. I can invest kind of at least at the scale I want to invest at. And they're basically saying, and this is rough math, but look, I'm going to put 75, 80% of my money into that end of the barbell as long as I can get into it. And then they're playing the complete other end of the barbell and they're saying, look, there's this whole emerging markets category. Dartboard. Right. I don't know – right, exactly. I don't know who's going to win, but I know there's going to be these some of these sub-$100 million funds that are going to grow up to be the next Andreessen Horowitz's, Sequoia's, you know, benchmarks, Greylocks of the world. And so they're kind of playing it. You know, if you heard them describe it, they would say, look, this is our farm team, right? And some will work and some won't work. But if some work, importantly, we can scale with them, meaning we can put more dollars at work as they grow. Because that's the other big constraint all these LPs have, right, is there's a finite number of dollars in those
3: firms. So in a lot of ways, it's a a exact analogy of what you're doing. I think that's exactly right, yeah. Of what venture capital firms are doing with founders, right? You know, the idea is if you back someone early, you know, and you have a relationship, I'm sure the first fund that Andreessen Horowitz did in 2000.
1: Nine, no, that was oversubscribed.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're always oversubscribed. No, but I'm sure, well, I'm sure they that...
1: had the Mark Star. Right, yeah, No. was a, was a, unique Mark was a huge part of
3: that. There's no right. about it. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, the idea is if you are in a great firm 10 years ago and you take a chance on them, you're more likely to have That's loyal- exactly right. loyalty.
2: That's exactly right. Sorry, right, if you invested in us when we were $300 million, you probably, you know, you probably had a 10 or $15 million allocation in the fund, right? And now, of course, we've grown, and so hopefully your 10 or 15 is now 30 to $50 million, so you've got more dollars at work. In at least what you believe is a better returning asset, right? Right. So that's essentially the way to think about it. The other thing, the other way to think about the uh, institutions is, some of what they're doing is just quite frankly um, diversification from a from a dollar currency mm-hmm. perspective. So the you know the reason why you've seen a lot of kind of non-U.S. money coming into venture over the last really probably ten or fifteen years uh, is because you've got people trying to diversify out of their own economy. And in some respects, quite frankly, dollar-denominated assets, no matter what they are, are more attractive. You know, kind of particularly right. in a you know in a in a changing economy. Well, <laughs> Plenty of that's, that's money been, has
1: been the theme. Plenty, Absolutely, that's not a secret theme. That's it's nothing. not a secret at all. No, right.
2: it's but but it is a it's a major benefit that the U.S. venture capital system has among other venture capital systems, which is there is a relative attractiveness to dollar-denominated assets relative to mm-hmm. foreign currency dollar. In, in, in your
3: experience with LPs, do you feel like they are totally a hundred percent financially driven? Like, do you think the question is like, I get a dollar and eight cents on the dollar here, and I get a dollar and nine cents on the dollar here? So, I should definitely choose that firm, or do you think there's no, any, Yeah, there is other Any stuff. broader but, mission driven political symbolic any sort of other considerations yeah
2: there are there are there are at least two things i think that are relevant to them one is kind of institutional staying power right so they want to believe that these firms are going to be institutional and around for a long time uh, and that's important to them. So, again, at the margin, if, you, if you're if you choosing between kind of a single-person GP firm and, you know, let's just take Excel. I'll just pick one, right? At the margin, even if they had identical returns, those dollars are going to go to Excel because the institutional nature – because they want people who can report and do the kind of institutional things they need them to do. And they like like the longevity. They like the idea that I can invest now and I can keep investing. The other thing, which is kind of a negative, is they just don't want headline risk, right? So all these people right. work for institutions, they don't many want people, of which right they don't want to be in a recode story. That's right, yeah, yeah. right. Many of them are in nonprofit institutions, right? We've seen all the stuff with the Sackler stuff, right? All that is mm-hmm. happening, like they don't want that kind of stuff, right? Don't don't give me headline risk, and so that goes a little bit with the institutional piece, which is okay, like. I'm assuming that those people will be probably a little bit more staid than someone who, like, doesn't feel those constraints. Those are the main things. From a pure mission-driven perspective, though, really not. In fact, actually, it's interesting. Most of our LPs are nonprofits, and so, look, they're like, look, the, the nonprofit piece is completely independent from the investment piece. So if you go to a Ford Foundation or somebody like that, the people who do the grant-making, quite frankly, I'm not sure, even sure they know who, like Eric Dobstadt is, who runs the mm-hmm. runs the endowment there. Uh, and so they're very, very distinct. So, like, they they would rather say, look, let us handle the nonprofit mission-driven stuff. Your job is to fund that portion of our business.
1: Right. All right. We're here with Scott Cooper. He's the managing partner of Andreessen in Horowitz. When we get back when we talk about secrets about – founders that are in trouble and other issues going forward. His new book is called Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It. We're going to take a break now and we'll be back after this. We're here with Scott Cooper. He is the author of a new book called Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital, and How to Get It. He knows a thing or two. He's the managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, which is the fancy firm of Silicon Valley now. You're kind of like the status quo now, and you're trying to be like the mavericks, <laughs> is right? Is that right?
2: Now we're, we're the Navy. We're not the pirates anymore at yeah. this point. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. pirate
1: thing. Why do people in Silicon Valley do that? <laughs> None of you are like
2: pirates. Is that right? No. Okay. I know. We we find memes and we like to latch on to them. It's ridiculous. Sorry.
1: Anyway, besides that, so talk about that, that idea of, of some of the issues when you're in a company. Um, yeah. most of your time is spent with the companies, not necessarily yeah. anything else. But what are some of the things that uh, you think are important to think about that people don't realize?
2: Yeah, look, I, I think, um, and I, again, I talked about this a little bit in the book, like so much of being inside of a company is creating and uh, establishing momentum in the business right so mm-hmm. look you all know better than anyone else like the the market for talent has never been more competitive and and I don't see any reason why it's not going to stay competitive and so you know, part of what's so important and part of the reason why we talk about things like raising the right amount of money and raising at the right valuation is you want, if possible, everything to kind of go up and to the right, right? You mm-hmm. want the story – you want the arc of your story to always be consistent, right? And so if you think about a fundraise event, the worst thing that can happen to you is you've been telling – you know, you're the CEO. You've been telling your company all along, hey, we're doing great. Like, we're hitting all of our metrics. And then, oh, by the way, we go out and raise money and either we can't raise or we raise a valuation that people, you know, kind of don't like. I told the story in the book when we raised money at LoudCloud – we raised money uh, literally nine months after the company started at an eight hundred and twenty million dollar post money valuation. We raised $120 million. And Ben and I were kind of gonna do an all-hands meeting and basically pat ourselves on the back and tell everybody how wonderful we were. And it turns out that everyone was upset because we didn't raise it a billion dollars. And this is before, quite frankly, we even had the term unicorn. And you know, it was crazy. Like the idea that we'd raise it a billion dollars was insane. But there was another company, Storage Networks, which you may recall was a long time ago, basically did raise at a billion dollars. And so quite frankly, it you know, the immediate interpretation from the company's perspective was okay, like Are all the things you guys are telling me true, which is, like, everything you said about how well we're doing, does the market actually reflect that? And so I think that's probably one of the most important things that we try to convey to our our companies is really making sure that you think critically about the fundraise process because it really does become one of the few report cards that you have from an external audience on your company.
3: Right. Do you feel like founders are actually doing that, though?
2: Uh, I think they're trying, and I think that's sometimes why you see them actually pushing valuation, you know, sometimes maybe ahead of where the progress of the business is. Right. Right, and we saw a lot more of this. I've seen less of it, to be quite honest, now than I did in the 15-ish timeframe where you would see more structured deals where people would get the headline valuation they were looking for, but there were things like ratchets or other stuff that was kind of funky going on. So I think there's been a little bit of a – I wouldn't say a reckoning, but I think people have a greater realization that those things can come back. You know, the Square IPO that happened, right, Right. where you had kind of, you know – you had this private round at 16 bucks, and the thing goes out at 8 and then the, the $16 guys, of course, have this you know, full ratchet that ratchets them down to 8 That was the first kind of public time we had seen kind of the negative effects of some of these terms that come back to haunt people. And so I think that gave people a little bit more of an awareness that it's, you know, if you can get a clean deal with slightly lower valuation, you're always better off than getting one of these structured deals at higher valuation. It's not entirely in the, you know, kind of water yet these days, but I think it's more in the water than it was kind of in that, you know, 2012 to 2015 timeframe.
1: What are some of the other things, giving founders money back? or founders' control, for example.
2: Yeah, so founders' control— I hate that, as you know. It's my least favorite thing. I I, I hear you. I mean, I think the reality is, look, that's largely market these days for most companies. Um, You have
1: to give them control.
2: In most cases, yeah. So at least at the board— Why is
1: that good in any way? I think it's complete bullshit that they are protecting the company. They're never unprotected.
2: So I think what happened was, and this was before we were in the business, so I don't want to I don't want to say anything bad about anyone anyway, so else. I think there was this meme out there that look the VCs were sometimes kind of you know uh, you know not as rational about moving entrepreneurs out of the business, right? That people would replace CEOs too whimsically, and mm-hmm. so I think this was a big this was a big push against that, which is to say, hey, look, this is my company, like you can't just wake up one day as a VC and stack the board and basically say you can push me out. Mm-hmm. Um, now was I agree this with what, you. The Steve Jobs thing it turned out okay. I mean, from where? No, I think it came. I think it came even before. Uh, you know, I think it was more in the earlier days of like, you know, kind of the, 90, you know, the 90s. I think there was mm-hmm. a lot of firms who developed a reputation at least that they would kind of turn right. founders out more. I think what happened was Zuckerberg did a really good job, uh, to his credit. This when, is Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg, sorry, did a really good job when they raised capital. goes to the other Zuckerberg. Uh, you know yeah. what? You never know. <laughs> People might not know. Yeah, you're yeah. Right. that's a good point. And that kind of became the template for a lot of firms. And I think what happened also, you know, this is a little bit of market thing, was the law firms also viewed this as part of their value add. They said, hey, wait a second, we're going to be on the founder side of this stuff. And so, I mean, I can tell you this just from when we started the business, everybody would come to us and they'd say, great, here's the governance structure for the business. And we'd say, okay, what's, you know, where's that coming from? And they're like, well that's what Mark Zuckerberg had. And we said, okay, like, right. oh, that's fair. But like, there are not not everybody is Mark Zuckerberg. He's like the gift that keeps on not giving. <laughs>
1: what, so, so why do you do it when it's not good, necessarily? Or well, do you don't care later when no, it's public?
2: No, I, I, I do. We do care. I think the problem is to be competitive in the market today, you there's certain to things them. you can do, right? But I think it's pretty hard in most cases not to have a founder-controlled board today. Right. Um, you know, I don't th- I think if you ask any venture capitalists, they probably say they don't like it. But I think the reality is that's probably where the market is today. Right. Now, there's other stuff that's more, you know, that people sometimes ask for, which is people want super voting stock for founders, right? Right. Right. Or they want other stuff. And I think in general, you know, we have, you know, in our firm, and I think the industry has been pretty good at pushing back on that stuff and saying, hey, look, when you go public, we understand there might be reasons why you want dual-class structures and let's deal with that kind of stuff. But while you're private... Like, you know, we need to kind of be careful about, you know, at least trying to maintain some reasonable semblance of governance. And I think the difference is because when it's public, look, you always have the ultimate out, which is, look, you can just sell the stock if you don't like it, right? If you don't like the governance structure, yeah. you get out of it.
1: Yeah, but people you don't are have fireable. That. You know, I mean, the, the idea is incredible in an, in an industry that's supposed to be all about innovation and change. Yeah. They make their, like, as ensconced as Soviet yeah. bureaucrats. Do you know <laughs> what I mean?
2: It's just... Distu- it's that's distu- true of some of the structures. I agree. Right. Some of them have had, like, reasonable, what are they called, sunset provisions, right? Where, you know, over a certain number of years or if the CEO is no longer actively involved in the company. There are other bells and whistles you can put on these things. I Sort of. I think you have
1: to act like Travis Kalanick before they'll do any. And even then, it went on for quite a long time. Yeah.
2: Look, the Travis situation was a hard one, right? I mean, right. like benchmark, like, it, that's a perfect example, right, which is, There's Benchmark and the other investors couldn't unilaterally vote to remove him, right? Ultimately, they had to kind of, you know, it was power persuasion or whatever, you know, kind of they ultimately got him to go. And I think that's an egregious example in terms of like it maybe going too far. Mm -hmm. But but that is the structure that most of these companies are operating under, which is they have founder-controlled boards. And so your ability to actually remove a founder is a function of, okay, can you actually convince them to do so and potentially convince other of the co-founders to agree with that? Mm -hmm. Or do you just basically kind of, you know, the only other option you have is kind of make a noisy exit, right, and say, okay, look, we're not going to be involved in this company, which is, I don't know if that's what happened in the Uber situation, but my guess is that, you know, at some point that probably came up in the conversation.
1: What about giving money to founders, uh, taking it out? That just happened with WeWork. Yeah, WeWork
2: was a big number. And
1: it was Groupon before that. There were lots of them before that, but there's been several. Bird did some of that as well.
2: Yeah, it's definitely, um, so I would say it's much more common and the dollar values are bigger. So Mm -hmm. even, you know, 10 years ago when we started in the business, the idea of kind of a million, two million dollars, right? The, the theory was, right? Theory was, yeah, like let's release the pressure valve, let's let you buy a house, and therefore that auto incent you to kind of have much longer runway in the company. And I think for the most part that's been true. But what's happened over the last ten years is those one or two million dollars have gone to, you know, seven hundred million dollars. Obviously, is definitely a big number, but they've gone to kind of five, ten, you know, kind of fifteen, twenty million dollar numbers. And I, you know, I think at some point in time you start to get misalignment at that that point in time.
3: The idea being that a founder would be somehow. That you know Adam Newman or whomever would be somehow less likely to put to burn the midnight oil because he's got a nice house anyway. Whatever, if we work fails, it doesn't really matter.
2: Yeah, I think that's you know that would be the that would be the concern, right? right. If you say, okay, look, with seven hundred million dollars in your pocket, right? You know, yes, it's nice to have the other several billion dollars. I'm sure he has from an equity perspective, but like, is your life meaningfully different at that point in time? Whereas, look, if you took a couple million dollars out, it enabled you to buy a house and kind of you know have a little bit more stability, you know, kind of with your family. You know, I think you'd argue if you've got, you know, 95-plus percent of the money still locked up and you've got – and it's a meaningful amount that that would actually drive behavior. Yeah, I think that's the concern. So,
1: what do you think of those?
2: So, look, I, I think we also. if solve, a founder
1: came to you and wanted this, the hot company? What do you do?
2: What we would like to do – so, what we try to do first of all is to say, hey, look, let's understand the situation, right? So, if it's a house or something else, quite frankly, our view is, look, either – you know, many of these guys are not taking much salary. So part of it is look, like let's just let's fix the salary, let's do stuff like that and let's not mm-hmm. touch equity if we can. Or let's figure out again, what is the reasonable amount of money that you need to feel like you can sleep well at night and, you know, kind of still not have impact on your motivation. I think the real solution to this problem, though, is we have to figure out how to actually get these companies public earlier, is my personal view. Which I want to get to. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, I think, is the real underlying problem, which is this was not an issue – you know, this was never really an issue until we got to this point where companies were staying private 10, 12 years. And you see this with employees too, right? You see companies doing these employee tenders now, you know, on a fairly regular basis. Mm -hmm. These are – to me, these are not not solving problems. They're just basically – you know, they're kind of, you know, treating the patient to a certain extent. Yeah. But the real solution to these problems is get these companies out at a reasonable period of time and let people actually have liquidity in the public markets. And then then everyone's got an equal opportunity to either sell or hold if they think there's more opportunity left in the company. Mm
1: -hmm. And how do we do that? Uh,
2: So I think there's a couple things. Uh, One is... um, To to get companies public earlier. Yeah. yeah. So one is just, look, I think as an industry, we have to do a better job of helping companies understand why being public is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think as, you know, sitting on boards and other stuff, we've got to help them understand. I think we gave people... I think we all understandably or not understandably got caught up in lots of the issues about being a public company and all the concerns and I think we probably, you know, basically delivered the wrong message in some respects to companies and told them, look, you know, well, you gave them so much money. You're giving him so well, much. Well I You're think the so- money I guess my I believe the money followed as opposed to the money was, was a leader. So I think personally what happened was Companies started staying private longer because there was this desire to not go public. And then I think what happened is then the public money basically came into the private market. And mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not trying to say that the VCs themselves aren't responsible at all. But I actually think the money followed kind of what was already a trend. If you look at some of the data, the trend in terms of later IPOs and fewer IPOs actually started well before you started to have like these massive amount of money at the later mm-hmm. end of the market. So I think we've got to help people do that. I think we've got to try, I and mean, it's one of the things we're trying to do in D.C. is to try to figure out are there things we can do to actually help uh, make it easier for companies to go public earlier. So uh, I spent a bunch of time with the SEC and others talking about, okay, like, how can you create a small cap IPO market? So it used to be, right, that 80% of IPOs were like sub $500 million market cap right. companies. That's just, that's completely gone. Like, there's yeah. no way mm-hmm. that's, that's happening now. And there's not great solutions there, but there are some solutions that are on the table to try like to increase liquidity. Right, long-term stock exchange might be a good example. Um, You know, we've got these 40 exchanges, right, that stocks trade on publicly, like one of the solutions that people are talking about is, okay, maybe for smaller cap companies, you shouldn't trade on all 40 exchanges, you should trade on two or three, so you can aggregate liquidity at a fewer number of places, and that will kind of make these stocks trade a little bit better. So it's things like that, which improve the trading dynamics of the stocks, I think are important. And then the third option is if we don't solve that problem, then I think we're going to have a more liquid and more structured secondary market. So mm-hmm. I think – I wouldn't be surprised. Which is if,
3: sort of the status quo.
2: Well, but it's not very liquid or structured today. So in other words, it's structured in the sense that basically you can go – you know, you know, I, I as, a, an, as a venture capital firm can go buy employee shares – Or I can go sell or somebody can buy shares. But it's hard to do. And there's no real trading dynamic. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see over time you have more secondary trading happening. And it looks a little bit like a public light market. So it will have some SEC. So none
1: of the scrutiny. No, no, public. I think it will have some. I think it will okay, have some. Okay, how so. would that? Because feels, that feels great to Silicon Valley. Yeah. No, no scrutiny. No, 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 no I'm of, not saying no scrutiny. All, yeah. I've, never,
2: I've never said no scrutiny, right. and, uh, and I don't think there should be. But I think you would have some oversight from the SEC or some organization like that, some information disclosure that people can monitor, and not necessarily continuous trading, so not necessarily something you can do every day, but there are periods of time, maybe it's monthly or I something say, like okay. that, where you can do something.
3: Because the idea now, right, is like if you want to buy shares of, you know, if you want to buy shares of Slack, you know, a year ago, it's not like my parents or, you know, your parents could just show up and buy a shirt of flat. That's exactly right. Like it's you hard can't, to do. Like, I mean, you had to know somebody probably, right. or, and also then, you wouldn't really have, you know, part of the point of the public market is that everyone has the same information, right? In yeah. this situation, you know, if you're a client of Goldman Sachs, maybe you do have certain information about right, Slack, right, right. but other people don't. So, that's, where, that's what you are getting
2: at. That's exactly right, yeah. And so, some type of exchange, right, which is kind of a quasi-private, quasi-public exchange where you just – you have some information sharing requirements that the SEC oversees, and you have some kind of trading capabilities. And 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 therefore, maybe we don't have this, like, massive divide between you're private for 10 years, and then all of a sudden you flip this magic button, you're public. There's some kind of almost on-ramp in some respects to the public markets.
1: Mm-hmm. So, last two things we want to talk yeah. about the amount of money in the market, yeah. the entrance of SoftBank. I'm going to use SoftBank because that's yeah. the one. Yeah. What do you actually think of them?
2: So, the very honest answer is the impact of SoftBank today is actually a lot less than it was three years ago. So, okay. How so, so? Because three years ago, SoftBank was literally a game of one. They were the mm-hmm. only one who had, you know, $100 billion worth of right. money that they were even conceivably right. thinking about doing. And so, what that did was that enabled them to kind of say, hey, look, we're going to pick one bet in this category. And so, somebody gets our money and basically everyone else doesn't and there weren't other sources of capital necessarily for those other players the big thing that's happened over the last three or four years is there are now many more players not necessarily at $100 billion but who can write 300 500 you know plus million dollar checks right you've got you know, folks like TPG or KKR, you got a bunch of the buyout firms doing this. You've still got hedge funds and mutual funds playing, albeit less. Even the sovereign wealth funds now, a lot right. of them have direct investing efforts. So I actually think the the impact of SoftBank now is actually muted relative because to Because on individual
3: deal, bit, like obviously, you know, uh, one of these – Hedge funds or sovereign wealth funds can't do fifty-two billion-dollar deals that we no. SoftBank can, but on individual deal-by-deal deal level, they can be competitive. Right.
2: Yeah, right. They can write if you can write a three hundred to five hundred million-dollar check, which you know there's not a million people who can do that, but there's a fair amount of people now who can do that. Like right. that's pretty meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. And so you don't have this dichotomy before where it was like either you were tapped by SoftBank and you got the money and everyone else was out of the market. Now there is kind of more, I guess, healthy competition in the sense that what did
1: it do to the market with these numbers? Then it's, that you're just saying that now there's more giant Bigfoot.
2: There is, yeah. And so what it's done is if you look at the numbers is something like last year, 60 or 70 percent of the dollars that were invested last year all came in $100 million plus round sizes, right? So of the roughly $100 billion, I think last year they got invested in the U.S., about 60, I think it was 65 to 70 percent of it was in these big rounds. Is that
1: a good thing? Well. Because we're at a low of new startups, small startups, correct? Like there isn't.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, I. I, I think you wouldn't – I mean, I don't know. That The numbers may say that. I would say if you look in general at the early stage market, it's pretty robust still. And there's mm-hmm. been a ton – in fact, over the last 10 years, there's been like 500 new seed funds raised. So right. I don't think there's much maybe, – maybe just purely by numbers, it's slightly down. But I don't think in terms of actual access to capital is down. I think it's a bad thing only in the sense that I think that these things should be public companies. And Mm -hmm. again, I've been on record on this in DC that I think it's bad. It's bad for us as a country to basically have effectively this massive wealth transfer that we've had from public market investors to private market investors. And selfishly, you know, quite frankly, for someone like us, it's great because it means we have more appreciation in the private markets, but it's just it's bad for our markets. Like Mm -hmm. if you looked at IPOs over long periods of time, it's actually been a good thing to have retail investors investing in IPOs. People have made significant amounts of money. The growth rates have been good. Even this year, if you look at it, quite frankly, you know, the IPOs, I, I saw some number IPOs up like 60% this year versus like 20% for the market or something.
1: And then, Leslie, diversity. Yeah. What's the secret there?
2: What is well, going, what happened? I don't think there's any secret. No, there than, isn't.
1: It's out in the open. Yeah. There, there's not enough. Yeah, there's definitely not
2: enough. Um, what is
1: the glaring problem? You were running a firm.
2: Yeah, I think there's two. Uh, I don't mean to say what's your excuse, but what's your excuse? Like, no, look, you I have think, a lot more. You have had yeah, a lot more. Yeah, look, uh, so uh, let me, t- I'll tell you about what we've been trying okay. to do and we'll okay. you'll see, you can tell me whether you think it works. So, First of all, on the GP side, you're right, which is until a couple years ago, we did not have any female GPs, Mm -hmm. right? And we had this hard criteria, which is we said you have to have been a founder or CEO. And shame on us. It probably should have taken us long to realize that. But, like, that is a pretty narrow spigot, and that's a pretty white male spigot. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what we said was about now about two years ago, we said, look— The criteria really is not founder-CEO. The criteria is are you maximally attractive to the very best entrepreneurs? And and one way to evidence that is, yes, you can be a founder-CEO, but there are other ways to evidence it. Like you can be someone like Connie Chan who has become an expert on, like, U.S.-China and published about it and and people understand and and seek her out. And that's attractive and, therefore, like she should be a general partner, right? And so we changed that criteria. Uh, We now have three general partners uh, who are women. And I think, you know, that's helped us at least kind of widen the funnel of, of potential candidates. I think the other problem, though, is what I would call kind of a network connectivity problem, uh, meaning that this is still kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, it's an old boys network in the sense that, like, you know, even if you just look at the referral network, right? A lot of the deals we see come from referrers in our network, and those referrers yeah, obviously reflect the flywheel. Right. They, they reflect the, the diversity time. in the in the industry, which isn't that great, right? So then,
3: then it's sort of be a lagging indicator. For the I think industry. that's right because, like, obviously, for a long time, you guys only had male male partners. Mm-hmm. So then, there's going to be well, I mean, even beyond, I I'm, say, I don't, I don't I'm mean saying mean even beyond
2: partners. I'm saying beyond partners. I'm saying just the broader referral for, network, yeah, right? Because, right. right, the entrepreneur network, by definition, is a pretty white male-centric group, and they tend to be, you know, lots of entrepreneurs these days do seed investments sure. or stuff like that. And they hey, become Scott, sources look, of here's my buddy. You That's know, exactly right, yeah. yeah. Look
3: at a deal he's doing, right? Yeah. So
2: I think what we have to do and what we're trying to do is, look, we've got to do a better job of kind of creating connectivity into networks that at least, you know, aren't already in that flywheel, right? And so, you know, we've got this thing called the Cultural Leadership Fund that you've probably seen. <laughs> Part of the reason to do that is to say, okay, great, like, we are going to actually have an Affirmative outreach into the African-American community to say, look, at least you know somebody in the business now, we're open for business, you're gonna get evaluated just like anybody else at the end of the day. But like it shouldn't be we shouldn't create a barrier to at least getting yourself into the network. And I think we've got to do more stuff like that. Now, the positive side I will say, and you know, Carrie, you should definitely feel free to disagree with me, is the LP community is definitely talking about it more, mm-hmm. which is good. And I don't think to your point yet, um, That LPs are making decisions on this basis, but they are at least asking for the data, right? So, I get a bunch of LPs on a regular basis who always ask us to fill out this survey of, okay, you know, show us kind of what your diversity looks like. And there are some, like Princeton, for example, that I think are pretty forward-looking, and they're even trying to change the way they evaluate new managers to, again, also recognize some of the biases they have in their funnel. So, I think that's good because, look, that will force change. The other thing is I think if you bifurcated firms between, you know, kind of established firms and newer firms, my guess would be that if you looked at the newer firms, the diversity is much better. And I realize, obviously, those are small numbers still. But uh, I, I think if you kind of – if you bifurcate by age, I think at least we're making some progress in that respect. Mm-hmm. So, the reality is, like, it's going to take time, you know, partly because, look, like, there's a finite number of jobs. They don't turn over very often. And I'm not trying to make excuses, but I think that's right. the reality That's the, It's called living. the Jeff
1: Bezos excuse, just so you know. Is that right? That's okay. what he said at a, a step. Meeting, He okay. said, well, everyone's so great. I like everyone here. And <laughs> right. yeah.
2: yeah, look, there are— okay. uh, Yeah, but I think at least—I think as an industry, people are talking about it a lot more. And again, I think right. the LP push is actually going to be very helpful. Right.
3: I mean, that, that to me feels like a yeah. lever that could actually force change, right? Yes. If, yeah.
2: if they actually made changes on But it, this right? is so, not—I
3: mean, that side of the table is not public in general, and they're not— Right. I don't think they've kind of lived up to a lot of It's responsibilities no. right. on this be
1: very. I think it's going to be it, slow on that side. Have they're going to ask questions. groups that have formed, like, always been impactful on you
2: all? Yeah, I think so. I certainly think so. Yeah, I think they've done a good job. At least they've they've kind of helped at least this kind of connectivity piece, right? Which is to making sure at least or that wordless or yeah. Yeah, so, to me,
1: boards are really the unexcusable yeah. part because that there's certainly plenty of. I right. think like, that's options. right, and that's, not, and
2: that's not tied to a venture that's capital t- firm. No, but you right. can help yeah. with that. We have a you. You may know this, but we've done this board mm-hmm. program for a couple of years now, where we've tried where we basically do a training for women and for minorities who are interested, and we go to our portfolio companies and we say, "Hey, look, designate to us somebody in your you know your team whose next career step should be to go on a private company board." We do this training. We've done it with Stanford, actually, for the last couple of years. And then basically our executive talent group then works to try to find placements for them. And so we're getting some movement out of some Mm -hmm. of that stuff. So look, I don't want to make any excuses. I think the industry, look, it is where it is. We know where the numbers are; they're abysmal, no matter how you slice it. But mm-hmm. at least I think it's a conversation that's happening. It's a more productive conversation that's happening. And I, I do agree with you, Teddy, that I think limited partners are not there yet, but at least they are starting to ask the question. And so they're definitely. And it's not, and it's not like that network is not heavily white and heavily male either. Yeah, you know, it's it's a. Ama- I will say though one thing is it's there's actually a lot of there's very heavy female representation in the LP community. You think it's more so? okay. And I don't know, I don't know if that, I don't know if I can prove that, but I can tell you if I look at our if I look at our L P base, the Number of female CIOs in yeah. our LP base is actually, you know, it seems to me way better. It's certainly way better than what the managers are mm-hmm. on the GP side. Okay, and I don't know if the, I don't know what the reason is for that. I don't know if there's some other reason how that's happened. So
1: has the have the I don't know if it's a word the Kleiner Perkins effect changed? Is that over the I, there was a the whole time when it was you know we can't have women venture capitals here because if I do, then I'm in trouble. Is that... Because I had a back and forth with with Ben Horowitz about that, actually. Yeah. About that issue. Has that shifted finally?
2: I don't see that. I really don't see that. And uh, and look, I don't know. I I won't speak for Kleiner or for Ben, actually, but I don't see that at all. Look, I think... I think people are aware. I in think a people are responsible. Way. I, I think that's right. I think people are approaching it responsibly. People are trying to do. I think the things like that we did, which is okay. Look, do we have job criteria that just by definition, whether whether purposely or not, actually it, yeah. you know is like not enabling us to tap into these networks. And then I think again, there's things like we're doing with you know this board stuff. There's things with the Cultural Leadership Fund. We're trying to figure out ways to improve connectivity. It's it's not you know as I said, I don't want to declare victory here, but at least I think we're right. making progress in the right direction.
1: All right, last question. What's the secret you didn't put in here? It's the biggest <laughs> secret. Scott?
2: God, I wish I, was I could say the, that. The, the actual what are you Rosa. Where
1: is Mark Andreessen's gold? Oh, example. I know exactly I now. a gold. Where's Mark, right? Because he's a leprechaun. Does Mark, you know? have,
2: does Mark have a pseudonym on Twitter that you actually, he's <laughs> no, actually tweeting against? No, he's just
1: against? as a as ever on his own. <laughs> <laughs> you, we want to know the secret of how Mark Anderson blocks people. So I get so much of that. <laughs> Is that right? I um, wish yeah. I could tell you. I don't know. He so just far, I'm All these people are like, I don't know why. I'm not, Aaron, not blocked. And Aaron from the New York You're Times. You're not blocked? I'm not blocked. I don't know why I'm not blocked because I really so, should so, be blocked. So does so he many.
2: respond to you or not?
1: Oh, yeah, all the time. But I'm just okay. saying. But not on Twitter. Let's No, but he sometimes. You can DM Okay. But it's interesting. So that's people on Twitter are so fascinated by how he blocks
2: people. I know. It's fascinating, I know. but
1: yeah. no. Would it, give me a real secret. That one, I don't. No one should care if you're being blocked by Mark Andreessen. Yeah.
2: So. I don't know if that's a real secret. Look, I, no. I don't. I
1: don't know if I have any more secrets. I
2: think I've told them all. None. Basically. All right. Uh, what are you? Yeah. What is? What do you see coming for venture capitalists? I've won. I Yeah. I okay. Good. Right. Okay. Okay. So, uh, what do I see coming? A couple things. One is we talked about. Look, I actually think. I think public and private is going to actually blend very meaningfully over the next five to ten years, and, and uh, I hope that means we have more early-stage IPOs, but if not, I think we are going to have a fully functioning secondary market that's mm-hmm. going to be different than we've seen before. The other thing I think is happening, which is not a change, but I think it's going to continue is as, as we, where we started, which is money Money is not going to be – will never, I think, be the scarce resource again. So, if you look at venture, right, for the first 35, 40 years, that was the scarce resource. The VCs had it. That's what basically kind of enabled them to have power over entrepreneurs. I don't think that's changing. Uh, I don't even think if interest rates go up, that's changing. I just think the reality is this is now an asset class where people actually think about it in a different way than they did before. And so I think there's always going to be more money and people with lower cost of capital. And so look for any of us to survive, whether we want to survive against other VCs or we got to survive against crowdfunding or ICOs or any of this stuff. It's, we're going to have to do something other than just provide capital, and, and uh, we're going to have to keep running really fast. I think those are the big things. The other big area, from just an investment perspective, we're spending a ton of time on the kind of the intersection of life sciences and computer science. Yeah. And I do think uh, I'm certainly not expert enough on it, but you know if you talk to our team, I think people feel like we're kind of in the, you know, 1960s, 1970s, you know, kind of, you know, equivalent of what happened in the computer industry. We're yeah, about nice to go, Yeah, we're about to go on this 30, 40 year, kind of real uh, interesting change. Absolutely. And uh, I think there's opportunities obviously for us to, you know, financially be do well and also for us to actually really do well from a from a uh, people perspective.
3: One, one, one final thing in terms yeah. of kind of looking forward. Uh, how seriously are you guys thinking about opportunity zones yeah. and sort of ways, briefly give a quick yeah. overview of what it is, but yeah. like, I know a l- There are a lot of firms that have sort of been studying this quietly? How seriously yep. are you guys thinking about that?
2: Well, so, so Opportunity Zone for people who don't know is part of the tax bill that happened in 2017 and mm-hmm. basically is if you're investing money in kind of areas that are considered to be you know, either lower income or in need of development, you can make a real estate investment that has a bunch of tax benefits. In particular, you can any investment, Any gains.
3: investment, but lots of them, real yeah, so of them in real estate. Yeah, most right. of them real estate, right?
2: Yeah. Um, and so the closest thing we have to it is we have a company called Cadre that you may be familiar right. with, right? And part of Cadre's business is they actually do have Opportunity Zone investments in addition to their broader real estate platform. Right. So so we're a direct investor there, uh, and interested in that area. I'm certain that probably individual partners, quite frankly, are looking at it as a way for them to potentially kind of, you know, diversify taxes. Sure. Uh, taxes and.
3: But you, you guys aren't seriously studying it
2: anyway. No, other than just through cadre, that's it. Got it. Okay. Okay. And
1: not and making more investments across
2: the country. Uh, we are, uh, but still, still, still pretty concentrated. We are yeah. but there, there was
3: an expectation, like, you know, I feel like the beginning, like a year ago, like lots of VCs were like, hey, maybe we're going to do a fu- like an Opportunity Zone fund. Oh, I see. Stuff okay. like that. Yeah. Which, that we, conversation we've totally- had, no, we've, had, we've had zero but Most investments on that. stay
2: yeah.
1: here. Your investments
2: stay in Yeah, most of ours. If you look at our portfolio today, about 75% of our dollars are probably around the 20-mile radius here. There's little LA, Seattle, New York, Boston, you know, two companies in the UK. You know,
1: Scott, opportunity is everywhere. Talent is everywhere. I think that's is true.
2: Not. I think that's true. Yeah.
1: Yeah, did you hear that when uh, when I interviewed Steve Case and Mark Cuban? He yes, said Silicon Valley was over.
2: What do yes. you think of that? I, Are I, you
1: over Scott Cooper?
2: I don't think so. I don't think
1: Why? so. Why? Be- Mark in, Mark I, Cuban is always right.
2: I know, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to see the rise of the rest. Like, I would love to see that yeah. happen. And I, and I think there are there are hints that it's starting to happen. But mm-hmm. I think people forget, like, the network effect that we have here has gone on for a long time. And it takes yeah. a long time to build this. Like I would argue, uh, this is, you know, people may disagree. I would argue, like, Silicon Valley dates back to the founding of Stanford mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that, like, so much of what Stanford did was kind of this movement of professors between academia and sure. commercial activity. And it certainly goes back to the military-industrial complex and kind of, you know, World War II. And, you know, like, 70, 80 years of building it up. It's you can beat network effects, and look, obviously we're doing a good job in California to try to do that. Whether it's housing problems or tax problems or all kinds of other stuff, like we are, you know, you know, making it harder and harder, I think, for people to be here. But it's pretty hard to beat these network effects. But I think they will grow in other places. I think if you can get, the, you know, I've talked to a bunch of kind of cities. When they're trying to do initiatives, and, and my advice to all of them is: look, you got to figure out what your comparative advantage is because you've got to build a small network effect in order to then kind of build yeah, 100% out. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, so figure out. You know, I sp- I lived in Raleigh for a couple years, so look, I don't know the area well, but look, maybe ag tech is the thing to do. Get a confluence of engineers and executives who understand ag tech, build an industry around that, and then you can kind of go out. I think the problem is people try to go too broad. So, last question: What
1: then is the thing you're most scared? Of? What will what will bring down? What will be the Khan, You know, in Khan did things die? Yeah. What will be the thing?
2: Look, I am most scared of us basically changing kind of how we think about improving entrepreneurship and making kind of the U.S. the beneficiary yes. of entrepreneurs. So, uh, China. So, look, yeah, so— uh, and I've, again, I've, I mean, whether it's look, I think immigration. I, you know, I've been on record in this. I certainly am not a fan of our immigration policy. I think, you know, we anything we do. The only raise, you know, as you know, the only way you grow a country is in growth economy is you either get more productivity, and or you get more population growth, right? And so, for us to not think that we need population growth and in particular high skilled labor to kind of help us continue to grow, I think <laughs> is silly. I've been on record too as well, which is I think the whole China, SIFIA stuff, I think is a real problem. I think anytime you put capital controls in, you know, th- I was on the Hill last week and I said this to a bunch of Congress people, it was just, look, like the genie's out of the bottle on technology. So the question is not whether we can stop technology. The question is, will the U.S. continue to be a major beneficiary of economic growth and job growth and all this stuff goes along and every time we do stuff. That may be rightly intentioned. I, I get it that people are worried about China stealing intellectual property. Uh, I just don't believe they're stealing intellectual property by making minority investments in you know tech companies. Mm-hmm. That's not the primary mechanism they're doing it. So no, that to me app is the biggest app thing. In case you didn't, know. face That's the I saw. National freak out. I saw before. your. I saw your New York Times case on Putin face, Putin face, wants exactly. your face Put cifius on that on face. <laughs> yes, exactly right. <laughs> cifius should shut down face app. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm all well, unfa- over in here,
1: that. they're stealing yeah. elections. But yeah. let's focus on the face but app. But I worry about that. I
2: mean, look, you've you've talked about this a ton of times, Karen, and I get it. But if you you know if you spend time in D.C at least my conclusion, is yeah. the two most bipartisan issues that everyone agrees on is we all hate China and we all hate tech. Yeah. Uh, those are the two things I think <laughs> that uh, everyone agrees on. And, and, ah. and uh, look, I mean, obviously, uh, I say it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I, I am I do worry about that. Yeah, uh, And it's not to say that tech has always been right and that we haven't had, you know, created lots of issues. But I just think generally, if you think long-term in terms of economic growth and ability to hopefully improve kind of, you know, the, you know, opportunities for people, particularly outside of Silicon Valley, uh, I think, you know, if we if we mess with that ecosystem too much, it's a real problem.
1: Yeah. Well we'll see. You're getting regulation, you do know that. Absolutely. Right? Right. I know that. Yeah. All right. We'll see how <laughs> it goes. Scott, thank you. You're a really good sport. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Thanks. Teddy. Thanks. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher, Teddy, what's your at Teddy Schliefer? At Teddy
2: Schleifer. What's try, your Schleifer? Try and spell it. Schleifer. I'm S <laughs> Cooper S K-U-P-O-R.
1: Okay. Uh, and Andreessen Horitz is A-A-16-Z Scott Z. will A16, not block Z, right? you. I do not uh, Scott block will you. not block anybody. <laughs> Mark, stop blocking people. Exactly. I'll
2: tell Mark to stop doing that. Stop
1: it. Such a baby Huey thing to do. Anyway, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Eric America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Scott, we've said we're going to find you online, and you, Teddy. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.